Welcome to CBH. We have a special guest, the uh, illustrious Jim Starenko, who has made several impacts on comic history throughout the years. Jim, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Jim, you know, I wanted to start from the beginning. You were born in the 1930s, and you have a lot of experience just from the Great Depression era and after. As a kid, you were reading newspaper comic strips, Alex Raymond, Hal Foster, Milton Kniff. Tell us, as a kid, the impact those images had on you growing up. Actually, it was rare that I saw those artists, Flash Gordon, more Prince Valiant. Certainly, Kniff was out there, but I grew up in a very poor background, cold poor, hungry poor. And the only newspaper we really got was a Sunday paper in my area. And the reason we got that paper, I believe, was because the entire section only cost 10 cents, Hmm. while the Philly Inquirer Sunday section cost 15. Hmm. That may sound preposterous to you in these days. But when I was a kid, every cent counted. My father built the home that we lived in. It was a shack, essentially three converted rooms, a kitchen, a living room, a bedroom. It was heated by a kitchen coal stove. Not only was all the cooking done on that stove, but the coal stove heated the house the whole house. It was very crude, and the fire on this little stove would often go out at night so that when we awoke on winter mornings, it was as cold inside as outside. Mm. I sometimes tell the story when people ask me, well, what did you draw on? Two things. In the summertime, because we could not afford a nickel for a tablet for me to draw on, I very carefully cut open envelopes that statements and bills came in to get to the clean paper on the inside to use as a drawing surface. In the wintertime, it was so cold in our place that ice formed on the inside of the windows. With the heat of my fingertips, I would practice drawing pictures on the ice, on the inside of the windows. We had a very difficult and anti-cultural kind of background. And during the war years, World War II, I collected newspapers from people in the neighborhood and tied up bundles that I would sell to paper companies at whatever the going rate was. It could be 40 cents for 100 pounds of papers. But 40 cents meant a lot to me. That was four new comic books I could buy. That's right, yeah. Or it could be 30 or 40 used comic books I could buy at two cents a pop. And often I would spend time going through those old newspapers and looking at and saving, cutting out and collecting comic strips. Oh. That was my education. That's where I learned to draw from. Mm. So, Daily News. Daily News featured Dick Tracy, Chester Gould's strip on the front cover. That was one of my favorites as a kid. During that time, it also featured Lee Elias's 
Beyond Mars. Elias was a Kniff imitator. That's right. Very good at it. And he had a very charming manner. Charm is something that almost doesn't exist these days. I said almost. There are some artists that can produce it, and they're very good at it. For example, like Adam Hughes. Yeah, okay. His work comes to mind, and he's really brilliant at it. But in those days, charm was a factor, was a selling factor in newspaper strips, films, and magazines, and books, and so forth. And I essentially grew up with old newspaper strips as my drawing lesson school. Hmm. Were you reading Jack Kirby books back then also, or did that come later? No, actually, it may have come sooner because, did you want to hear this? <laughs> I grew up with comics. My uncle Eugene, maybe once a month, would bring a bag full of used comic books, comics he was through with, and bring them over for me to look at as a kid. And I mean, really a kid. My mother told me this story about five years ago. She said that she would put me on her lap and she had me pick out some of my favorite comic books. And I was the first of the children, so I dominated her time. Mm. And she would read the balloons that I would point to because I knew that that's what the characters were saying. So I'd point to the balloons one at a time and she'd read them. This is a story my mother told me. Yeah. And she said, that's how I learned to read. She said I was a year and a half old. Mom, that's pretty damn early for a kid reading a year and Mm -hmm. a half. I'm Mm -hmm. not so sure I believe that. Mm. The following week, she produced a baby book. You know, mother's baby books where she had how much I weighed and how tall I was and so forth by the year. And she pointed to this entry that she made when I was a year and a half old saying that I could read, read comic books. Right. And she said, they, my mother and father, didn't believe it either. They thought that I had memorized the dialogue in these books or in these certain my favorite stories and that I was simply remembering it and repeating it. So they covered over the pictures so that just the type, just the balloons were showing. And then they asked me to read it, which I did. Wow. So I'm guessing I probably started with comic books. I guess they're about as much in my blood as anybody could possibly be. Right, that's amazing. And a half old. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I'm still working at it. Yeah, that's right. Who introduced you to the magician trade? Was that your father that introduced you to that? Did I read that correctly? My father was an amateur magician. And somehow along the way, he subscribed to a magic course that had 60 lessons. It was called the Tarbell Course of Magic, Harlan Tarbell. Where he got the money, I have no idea because, like I said, you know, we were too poor to... In our house, we had no books, no books. We had no pictures hanging on the wall. It was a really barren existence. But somehow, and he may have bought this course before he was married, maybe money he earned as a kid, perhaps. My father, I think he told me he went to school until fifth grade. I think he was about 11 years old. And then he began working in the coal mines, standing in 
running water underground. Have you ever been in a cave? You know how cold it is in a cave? Right. You know, standing in a cave for 15 hours in running water a day, separating coal from shale and rock, that was his life. Mm -hmm. Right. So I guess it's okay that he could spend, you know, some money to buy something he really enjoyed. Loved, the Tarbell Magic Course. And so as a kid, I was an audience for him to perform particularly at like if there was a little birthday party or a little celebration, you know, that we had, we didn't have much, but he'd bring out this magic paraphernalia and do these tricks. Hmm. And I think that planted a seed in my creative persona. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the next step was that when, you know, that when the cat's away, how the mice will play. Right. Well, when my folks were away and I was home by myself, I discovered where he hid the Tarbell magic course. And that's where I got my first instruction on magic and also where I learned about Houdini. And Houdini was very influential in my career uh -huh. because I found that there were similarities between Houdini, Houdini's ideas, and things that I felt I was particularly suited to. For example, I always had good upper body strength. That's good for certain escapes, mm. rope ties. I had a higher threshold for pain than I think many other people had. I have an eye condition. I'm very light sensitive. Oh, okay. I can see in the dark. I think the term is nyphalopia. So is that why you always wear sunglasses? Stay with us. We'll be right back. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Yeah, I wore sunglasses when I produced all of my comic books because the light bouncing off the page oh, really? hurt my eyes. So it wasn't just a style thing. It's actually like a necessity to just see what you're doing better. I like to work in very lowly areas because they're extremely comfortable for me. On the other hand, when I had my company, my business, my publishing company and so forth, everybody was kind of depressed when they worked for me because the lights were always so Oh, low. I see. That's funny. Well, when I'm the boss, I decide how the lights are. When that's you're true. you're the boss, you can decide. Yeah, that's right. But bright lights hurt my eyes okay yeah i drew all my comics with sunglasses oh that answers that question actually so now fast forward a bit and this is a lot of years but to your early 20s and so you're well adept at the magician trade and you're also a musician this is i think in the mid 1950s possibly or maybe actually no maybe in the late 1950s you were doing rock and roll is that correct you were actually in a rock band I was in many rock bands. I played music and earned my living that way from the time I was 18 to 30. There was something I read about the first go-go dancer on stage 
that you had something to do with that? Is that correct? Well, I invented the go-go girl. Is that true? Everybody knows that story. Come on. <laughs> I'll tell you how it came about. In my area on the East Coast, just in my area, Musicians Local 235. Do I get some points for remembering that? Yeah, you do. Mm -hmm. Good detail. <laughs> there were 300 bands in my little area. So the competition was fierce. And I think close to half of them were union bands. Oh, okay. There weren't 150 clubs to play every week, you know. In the area, there may have been 30. Maybe in a 30-mile area, there may have been 30, 40 fire companies, you know, nightclubs, beer joints, saloons that featured music, right? Mm -hmm. So the competition was really fierce. You know, in the Philly area, Philly is a music kind of town, right? We know that. Mm -hmm. you know, rock and roll, Dick Clark, American Bandstand. I mean, the number of locations to play was maybe one-tenth that of the number of musicians who were in the area. The union plus the non-union musicians had to be easily over 300. So how do you work? How do you find work? You have to compete. How do you compete? I was saying a lot of these guys were terrific musicians and performers. How do you compete? There's a problem that was very vexing at the time. I had material, new ideas, new concepts that I was promoting because I had already done magic professionally and I'd also done stand-up comedy. That's cool. So I was used to entertaining on another level and I brought that, that kind of MC work into my rock and roll presentation. That was something that most groups didn't have. They played music, but they didn't entertain, you know, on the side. And I, I will make this one point. Some of it was very experimental. I remember that some of it was actually acrobatic. When I was playing guitar, I would climb on the shoulders of my bass man. He'd be playing bass and I'd be playing guitar on his shoulders, you know, part of this rock and roll show. You see yeah. what I mean? You know, trying to get an edge over the other bands. So one day I'm thinking, maybe I was talking to one of my girlfriends, a great dancer, and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to put a really good-looking babe who is a great dancer on the stage and maybe put her in a little costume and make a thing out of it? <laughs> and I mentioned this to one of the bars, one of the saloons we used to play. I knew this place very well, used to play there often every Friday night for like three months in a row. You know, we booked every Friday. That was a big night, Friday nights. The guy loved the idea. And so I put the word out, trying to pick up a possible dancer to put on the stage. Where would I find one? I went to the tap dancing, acrobatic dancing schools because they must have had 50 kids that started when they were, you know, five years old. And then, you know, 50% of them continued on for three years and then they dropped out. But there were still girls in their late teens either teaching or being taught there. Well, hey, there's no market for it. 
you know, vaudeville's over. Right. There's no market for tap dancers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a kind of social thing. It's an art, but they couldn't earn any money. And I went to all the studios and I said, look, I'm going to pay these women to dance on stage. No acrobatic dancing, no tap, nothing. They're just going to rock and roll. They're going to do the shimmy. They're going to do the twist. They're going to do the, you know, the popular dances on the stage by themselves. And then we were like, what the hell are you talking about? I'm saying, no, this could be a really cool thing. Nobody was interested. I couldn't find anybody. I couldn't recruit anybody to do this bit. And finally, after months of coaxing and looking and begging, I finally found a girl who would do it. Oh, okay. And we hit it really hard in newspaper ads. Guess whose idea that was? And we packed the joint. Miss Twist. Oh, nice. Miss Twist. There you go. Miss Twist. (laughs) And this was at a time when Chubby Checker hit it big, right? It was a sensation. Yeah, that's cool. And the moment I did it, other bands copied it immediately. Now it became like a little trend, a movement. Well, how was I going to beat it? I put two girls on stage. There you go. Double the entertainment. So it was a matter of finding the right direction to rival anybody else and come up with constant new ideas. Yeah. One of them, for example, was that I had one of our girls a pretty good-looking girl, do a kind of strip tease. Mm-hmm. We played three tunes like Night Train, which is a real bluesy, you know, burlesque kind of beat. And I designed a costume for this girl, one-of-a-kind costume made by a seamstress that would zip away pieces at a time. Oh, that's cool. And come apart. And we knocked them out with that. We hmm. played for about a year with that going on. I don't remember anybody else that copied that particular thing, but I'm sure it was there. And then about another year went by. It's so long ago, you know, I'm only guessing. When girls dancing on stage became almost a national trend and the word go-go was coined. But I'd say I created the go-go girl, but not the term. Right, not the term, but the actual action. I'm going to take that for it until somebody proves me. That's awesome. You know, otherwise, but every word is absolutely right. true. And we're talking about some pretty good positions along the way too. Bill Haley came from my area. Oh, I see. I knew Bill very well. I knew all the comments. Can I tell you a comment story? Yeah, please. Somehow, and I'm not exactly sure how. Maybe it was in a conversation we had. Bill somehow knew that I was a commercial artist, a designer. And he somehow correlated an event with what I did. I'm still not quite sure how we got from A to B, but he came over to me one day. I guess we were playing the same gig. And he said, Jim, I want to show you something. Come on over to the truck. And we went over to his truck and he opened the doors. And there was a -a one-of-a-kind hand-cut wooden matrix for a Bill Haley poster. And the poster itself was probably something like 40 by 60 or 70 inches. I mean, it was the kind, you know, you put in the side of barns or something. It was huge. And it came in two pieces. And he had a lot of other hand-cut signs or imprints, you know, block prints that were used to ink up and print Bill Haley and the Comet posters. And he said, I'm 
fed up with carrying this stuff around. I just don't want to do it anymore. And he said, do you have any use for this? He said, I know you're a commercial artist. Well, I didn't have any use for it. But I felt that, first of all, it was a beautiful gesture, you know, for Bill to offer me that material, I thought, even though he'd probably throw it out otherwise. And I said, absolutely. And somehow managed to get it in a car, one of the guy's cars along the way. And there must have been other type and, I don't know, maybe a dozen or two dozen of these various block print, hand cut, wooden matrixes. Mm -hmm. And I still have them. Maybe a memory, I have one of them at least hanging on the wall mm -hmm. as, a, as a kind of a decoration. It's all full of ink. I mean, it's a mess. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's almost like Jackson Pollock, you know, out of Bill Haley. Bill was the most unlikely rock and roller you could ever meet because he had split vision. Like his eyes were crossed out? They weren't crossed. They were in the opposite direction. Yeah. He lived about 20 minutes from where I lived. And can I tell a little rock and roll Please. A story that yeah. nobody knows? Yeah, I'd love it. Every rock and roller in America, every single one knew the words and the music to rock around the clock because that was an yeah. emblematic song for the rock and roll era. That's right. And every musician knew the solo that was played on Rock Around the Clock. The solo was and has been attributed to, you know, I have to think of this guy's name. It was a guy that worked in an orchestral background much of his life, you know, recording and work with big bands. He could read music. He was not a teenager. The solo was attributed to him, but actually it's bogus. The famous guitar solo that every rock and roller knew by heart was really cut by Danny Cedrone. Oh, okay. So I want to go on record. Yes, okay, there you Danny, go. Danny, wherever you are, setting the record straight. That's right, you that. did. Now, also, as a man of many talents, while you were doing music for different clubs, you were also designing flyers and pamphlets for clubs that you were playing music for, is that correct? Or you were designing flyers or advertisements while you're doing this? You know, rock and roll was like two, three, four nights a week. And it changed every week. And that wasn't quite enough to keep me busy. Might have kept some people busy. Right. Always being interested in the art world, learning to draw from comic strips. And I should mention that one of my primary influences was the Johnny Hazard comic strip. Frank Robbins. Created by Frank Robbins whom I ultimately got to know and hang out with. Oh, you did? Great. He had an apartment on Riverside Drive up in Manhattan. And the thing you didn't know about Robbins is he spent one day a week, I think one day writing and maybe one day drawing a Sunday in the daily in one little place in his apartment. The rest of the place was dedicated to audio equipment. Oh, okay. He invented stereo-like material, and that took up most of his time. And one other thing about Robbins, who may be relatively unknown now, but I can guarantee you that many, many of Robbins, particularly his Sunday pages and his Sunday top, many of them rivaled that of Kniff. Yeah. He, Robbins, he also did one other thing that I'd like to point out to your listeners, and that is he was a genius at what's called spotting blacks. 
which is drawing the panel in outline in pencil and then putting in black areas, shadows, mm-hmm. dark areas, dark costumes on characters. Yeah. And he was brilliant at it. Right. And we see that with your work for sure. I hope so. If I could be, you know, just 10% as good as he was at spotting blacks, I think maybe my existence on this planet would be just There, there you go. So then as far as Frank Robbins then, he also influenced uh, Alex Toth as well, I think. It seems like he was actually a big figure in comic history as far as the art form. Did he bring like Noel Sickle style to like your generation then? Is that how you would look at it? This is a difficult call. Who borrowed from who? Right. You know, Kniff came first. Mm -hmm. Sickles assisted him. But Sickles also started, I guess, Scorchy Smith. Did Robbins assist Sickles on Scorchy? I thought he did Scorchy. And then he went off to Johnny Hazard after that. I thought that's that transition went. And I know that Kniff had some influence from Sickles a bit, too, because they kind of looked alike for a little while there. I often refer to the roots of style, of comic book style. The roots of comic book style are in newspaper strips. Right. The roots are the big three. Kniff, Mm -hmm. Hal Foster with Mm -hmm. Prince Valiant, and Alex Raymond with Flash Gordon. Mm -hmm. 95% of every comic strip and comic book subsequent to that period were based on one form or another on those Three. three artists, right. including, for example, Kirby. Yeah, right. Kirby was a big Kniff and Raymond fan. And if you look at Kirby's earliest works, you'll see him copying those styles. Mm-hmm. So the trio was massively influential, influential on comic book artists and writers. So you're designing pamphlets and ads and you're doing music. During right. my rock and roll years, yes. I was looking for other work. I was looking to develop mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. artistic talents. Yes, visual, the visual language. And may I tell you how I got started? In Please, the yeah, journal? absolutely, yes. You man enough? I think so. I spent a lot of time at the Y. Oh, okay. At the Y. I was a bodybuilder there, and I spent a couple of years boxing at the Y. A really interesting story behind that one, but I don't think we're going to do that tonight. Maybe we'll do a future film of it, and that way I don't even have to discuss it. That's it, okay. But I was uh, I was at the Y, and one of the other weightlifters there mentioned that there was a new newspaper opening up in town, and that was unusual. We had a morning and an evening paper, Reading Times, the Reading Eagle, and they had a headlock on the newspaper business. But there was a guy who worked for that newspaper that thought he could produce a weekly tabloid that would bring people, let's say, more sensational news, more provocative, using more maybe local celebrities. And newspapers make their money not on single copy sales, but on advertising. Yes, right. Magazines and comic books. They don't make their money off of single copy newsstand sales. It's always exclusively on advertising. And this guy, Jerry Coburn was his name. Jerry had a lot of connections and he thought he could fill his newspaper apparently with ads, which would support it no matter how many copies he sold, whether it was 10 or Mm 10,000. So right from the Y, I called up this new place called the operator and asked her if the Reading Record had phone service yet. And she looked up and she said, yeah, they just got it. I said, put me through. 
And the receptionist picked up the phone. I said, I'm looking for a connection to talk to because you're going to need a commercial artist on the staff to handle cartoons and ads and you know there's always paste-ups and other in the old days before there was digital stuff everything was done by paste-up and by a wild coincidence mm-hmm. the receptionist was one of my old girlfriends oh okay Jeanette who was also Miss Armed Forces just that I threw out <laughs> you. well done Miss Armed Forces she looked like hey I don't care whether you believe me or not I believe you man she was a little Elizabeth Taylor. Nice. And she recognized my voice on the phone. <laughs> and she said, Jim, Jerry already had that figured out, the editor and publisher. He said, he just got a guy in here just this week. They had just opened up. He said, you know, he's got a guy working back. I said, connect me with the guy. And she put me through to his phone. And I said, look, I'm a young commercial artist. And I'm interested in you know, getting in the business. And I'm particularly interested in the newspaper business. And he said, I'm taking care of everything. I'm it. I'm here. Right. I'm the guy. Oh, okay. I went home. I got my portfolio and I brought it in. And uh, I knocked on his door. The door, door was open. And he said, Yes, who is it? And I said, I talked to you like an hour ago. I said, How can you tell me that you don't want me to be at least an assistant? at least to work on the staff of the newspaper without seeing my work. You cannot say no without seeing the work. Maybe when you see the work, you can say no, but I won't accept it. I said, I could be Michelangelo. You don't know. Yeah. But you can't tell me no without seeing the work. Well, he was stunned. And he said, let's see it. He said, I'm not sure it really matters because you're going to be an artist. You have the determination. If I told you that the job was taken and you bring your work in anyway within an hour. He said, I know you're going to be a success. So we'll work together. Nice. And that's how I got my foothold in the business. In the advertising business. In the advertising business. Now, we segue a couple of years down the line. His name was Fran. Uh-huh. Fran Spots. And when I moved on to other things, I decided that I had the chops to work for a bigger agency or bigger publisher, printer, whatever it would be, Mm -hmm. designer. And I looked in the phone book to a place that was closest to where I lived. So I didn't have to drive, you know, like 25 minutes to work or, you know, 40 minutes or, you know, I didn't believe in that. I could get there in a matter of three or four minutes. But I went to the place and I showed them some of my drawings. And the boss's name was Arthur. Arthur said, we really don't have enough work for you here you know, to hire a, a full-time commercial artist. And I said, hey, I can do more than that. And he said, like what? I said, anything that any of these guys can do, I can also do. I can handle it. And he decided to put me on. And I was there and really learned a lot over the next, I don't know, three years or I see. something like that, uh-huh. three or four years. I learned to make plates to burn plates. I learned to photograph negatives. I learned press. I learned every oh, okay. single operation in the printing trade, uh-huh. which which you use later when you publish. Advantage for the rest of my life because I knew how reproduction techniques worked, and that put me in a special category. Yeah, it does. In a position above Kirby, Ramita, 
Toth and all the rest of them because they didn't go through this process. Right. But I knew it firsthand, so I had an edge, and I used that edge. Now, I had an altercation at this printing company where I worked with a guy who had been there for years, maybe 20 years before me. We got into a little brawl. I was a very aggressive and disagreeable guy. I, nobody there really liked him. But they put up with him because they didn't want to be in a confrontational situation. But I come from a different kind of background. And I got into a fight with this guy. And I said, I think I learned all I could learn at this particular place. I'm going to move on. Mm. One of my customers was the head of an advertising agency. His name was Quentin, Quentin Minker. And Quentin and I spoke the same language artistically and design-wise. And I got along with him really well as a customer. So I was thinking, why couldn't I parlay my association with Quentin maybe into another job? And so I quit at the printer's. And I confronted my former business associate, Quentin. And I said, I think I have what it takes to be in the advertising field. I said, you already know my work. You know how dedicated I am to making things happen exactly the way you want them to happen. And I'm going to do that here for you. And Quentin says, I'm not too sure what you're getting at. And I said, I've got to work for you starting tomorrow. And he said, no, Jim, look, all our positions are filled. The guys have been here for a long time. He said, we get along really well. I like your work, but there's just no place for you here. And I said, give me that piece of paper, a little pad. And I wrote a number down on it. And I said, I'm going to make you an offer. I'm going to work for you for two weeks. And if the work that I produce for you doesn't make two or three times the number that I wrote down on this piece of paper, I'll just leave. Yeah, okay. You'll have me for two weeks, and I'll do everything I need to do here to make things happen. I'll even empty that ashtray on your desk if I have to. (laughs) I said, I'm a pretty good writer to begin with. I know something about writing. I know some of the rules. I said, so I can work from that area to illustration, to design, and I have a production background that I'm not sure any of your guys have. And he said, ah, Jim, come on. Right. You know, there, there's no point. And I said, look, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. If I don't produce enough work that you can bill to your customers at two to three times the amount that I wrote on that paper, which is the salary I want from you, if you decide to put me on. I said, if you decide that I don't work out, that I don't make that kind of money, profit for you, I'll just walk out the door. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I won't confront you. There won't be another word said. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Quentin, and I'll just leave. Nothing else, and you won't owe me a thing, and we'll be friends. I said, you can't turn me down. And he said, you know, you're right. I can't turn you down. I said, I'm going to start tomorrow. I was there for three years. And I became the art director in six months. So you had innate talent for this. All the guys, they were all much older than me. I was just in my early 20s at the time. They really hated my guts because I was a slave driver. But we did some fabulous work from billboards to Mm -hmm. newspaper ads to magazine ads, Mm -hmm. TV commercials, you know, and so forth. We really knocked it out of the ballpark. Mm. 
So you had all these visual techniques you're able to bring to various art forms that you got involved in well, with this experience. Well, I was already design savvy. Just because an artist can draw well, that's draftsmanship. He draws the figure well. Yeah, right. Okay, he draws backgrounds. He draws cars and buildings well. He draws well. He inks well. That's draftsmanship. That has nothing to do with design. Anybody who thinks that is making a terminal mistake because draftsmanship and design Different. are at... I brought my design chops, my skills, into the comic book world. It is not something that I can shut off. You get it? Yeah. I can't just shut it off and say, hey, I don't know what this is about. Every line I put on a piece of paper has to conform to my design skills, my rules, my knowledge. And so I brought typography, design, composition, and... One other thing that I think is really the heart of comics, which is storytelling, drawing, artwork is not the core of the comics medium. Comics are about narrative art or storytelling. And this is where I think many people in the business go wrong today because the emphasis is on drawing great figures rather than telling great stories. Mm. We have a few guys who are really terrific at it, but not enough. And I think we're losing it. It's like sailing Spanish galleons. Nobody knows how to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. The focus is more on big figures and a lot of lines on paper. But that's not really where comics. Comics are a storytelling medium. I spent an enormous amount of time as a kid in movie theaters. And my storytelling sensibilities were informed completely by the world's greatest directors. And this is what I thought. Yeah, movies, right. Movies, film. My influences, Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, Sequential storytelling, yes. John Ford, Orson Welles, whom I knew, Henry Hathaway. These are the guys that influenced me, cinematographers. Yeah, and then the way the story goes, okay. I often hear this, who influenced you the most. My drawings... Some drawings are certainly influenced by artists that I've mentioned, uh, Frank Robbins, Wally right, Jack right. Kirby, you know, Alex Toth, Reed Crandall. You know, I have many, many influences. influences but the movies. I never went to school. I say that in terms of my storytelling abilities, they are entirely informed by the world's greatest director. Teacher. That makes sense. Because it feels like that when you read your stuff. It feels like oh, it's a movie. My, this is my philosophy. You go to the movies. You laugh out loud. You cry. When's the last time you picked up a comic book and you laughed out loud? Yeah, it's or rare. you cry. Not often. Right. That's because the world's greatest storytellers are in the movie business, not in the comic mm, book. That makes sense. So my concepts of how to create stories and how to mount them essentially come from the film world. I was surprised very early on when I got to Marvel that my work was identified very quickly by fanboys who recognized a different kind of quality in the work, in the storytelling aspect of it. They would say, you know, this is very cinematic. And they were right on the money in their perception. That was a very insightful thing for them to realize that there was something different. I didn't even know about it. I mean, it makes common sense, but I wasn't even aware that, hey, I want to produce this book or this series 
and it will have a cinematic quality. That really wasn't on my mind. Now, just a clarification. So then you're doing advertising. That's later 50s and early 60s, right? Just to be clear on the timeline. Correct. Was it during that time frame that this Julia Schwartz story happened where you stopped by DC and he showed you an Adam Strange comic? Is that around that time period? It would have been around that time period. Maybe in the early 60s or oh, okay, early 60s. Or, uh, or the late 50s. I see. And I, New York was like my second home. I spent a lot of time in New York. Just out of, let's say, curiosity, I had nothing to do, you know, one afternoon. And I was right in that area, and I thought I'd just stop in. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? They'd throw me out. I've been thrown out of better places than that before. <laughs> so... I walked in, and it was overlapping lunch hour a little bit. Maybe it was like 2 in the afternoon, 1.32. And I went to the receptionist, and I said, I'm a big fan. Been a comic book reader all my life. And I was in the area, and I thought I'd stop in to maybe talk to somebody here that could enlighten me on a few things because, I don't know, maybe someday in the future, I might be one of you guys. And she kind of chuckled at that, and she said, well, everybody's out to lunch. You know, your timing isn't so good. I see. Okay, well, my timing wasn't so good. And then she said, but I think Julie is here. Would oh, really? Would like to talk to Julie? And I'm thinking, would I like to talk to Julie? Hey, I'd love to talk mm-hmm. to Julie. I'm thinking about maybe Julie Adams or, uh, you know, and she said, okay, well, just have a seat. So I'm waiting for Julie to come in in all her glory. And who do you think shows up? Yeah, sure. Julie Schwartz. Right. What a surprise. Well, Julie spent the next hour with me. He took me through the whole place. Oh, cool. And eventually some of these guys came back in and I met Uh other people there. And Julie was kind enough to answer all the questions that I had. Oh, cool. At the end of the visit, we went back to the reception area and... I thanked him for spending an hour, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, that's valuable nice. time, you know, with a dumb kid walking in right off the street. But he must have seen it, something in you because I've heard he's very picky about people. That I wouldn't know about. But yeah. that day was a revelation to me. I had already met other people, known other people kind of in the business, but this was in a transcendental kind of moment. I thanked Julie and, and he said, what, what, wait right here. So stay right there. Don't go away. And I'm thinking... What's this? And he left and he came back, I don't know, three minutes later, big pack of paper. And he said, this might be an inspiration to you. He gave me an Adam Strange story, you know, man of two worlds. The entire story, 26 pages, I think it was, or seven, 26 Mm -hmm. and a half, I'm not Mm -hmm. sure. Beautiful uh, Infantino. Right. And I think it was Murphy Anderson. Murphy Anderson Inks. One of the two. Or Joe Anderson. Right. And he also gave me the script. He said, this is the best I can do for you. And I still have that story and that script. Oh, that's great. And I think, in a way, Julie's kindness to me that day maybe made a difference in I see. inspiring me to really go to the trouble to get into the business. He was a positive influence at that time. Very much so. You're in the advertising world. Now it's in the mid-60s, 
You created a few character concepts for Harvey Thriller comics with Joe Simon. Spy Man was a character. And you did, I think, a one page inside. You wrote a script for that. And then you went to Marvel right after. What happened with Harvey? Why didn't you stay there? And what made you go to Marvel? What led to that sudden change there? Seemed like you were on the move a lot. I was really busy in those days. I was an art director at an ad agency. I would play in rock and roll three to five nights a week. And I didn't have enough space in my apartment. Had a lot of comic books and stuff I, you know, that was just taking up room I, I didn't really have. And so I heard about a convention in New York City in 1965 mm-hmm. called the Kaler Con, Dave Kaler. I packed up my girlfriend. She was maybe the last of my go-go girls. Mm. I had a white Cadillac, mm-hmm. the biggest fins you ever saw in your life filled with comic books we went up to new york to the broadway hotel central and i remember we checked into the place got our keys went upstairs and i was thinking i don't want to have my comic books out in the street in my car you know overnight i better you know think about hauling this stuff into the broadway hotel central where the convention was going to take place right and i remember coming into the room and snapping on the light And I don't think I've ever seen so much movement. It was like the Big Bang, hundreds, probably thousands or maybe tens of thousands of cockroaches (laughs) all over this room. Okay, okay. Scattered to get away from the light. (laughs) I think some of them actually went in the light switch. And that was more than I could handle. The Broadway Hotel Central. We got another hotel that night. Just as a capper on that one, I used to stay a couple of years later with my friend Phil Suling. Phil is the guy who started the direct, direct comic market. sales system. And he also threw the first and the biggest, the first biggest comic conventions in New York, in New York. Statler Hill. Comic art convention. Something. Phil and I were close friends and I used to stay at his place. I remember we were eating breakfast one time. He lived in Coney Island in a high rise. And he handed me this newspaper, and it was a photograph of the front of the Broadway Hotel Central first convention that had literally the face of the hotel had fallen into the street. It had collapsed. Literally. <laughs> I think I could have predicted that years ago, but it was vindication, you know, that this was truly cockroach heaven <laughs> at this place. Anyway, I was a dealer. At the show. Oh, okay. And just for the hell of it, don't ask me why, I can't tell you. I had done a little drawing of a gladiator. It was a gladiator like you've never seen before because he was half covered in chain mail and armor, mm-hmm. only one half. Mm. That was the half that would take opponents' blows. In other words, his left half was covered with armor, his right half was naked. His right arm had no metal to impede it, nothing heavy except his sword arm. That would give him an advantage in terms of speed. I knew a little bit about edge weapons because I had fenced for about three years. Right. So I had this idea about armor that should have been for gladiators. And I had it taped up on the wall behind me. Well, just by a wild coincidence, Joe Simon, half of the Simon and Kirby team for years, attended the show. Oh, okay. And he was looking around and he came up to my table 
I'm not sure I even knew who he was at the time, but he right. said, what's that drawing up there? Yeah. And I told him just what I told you. I was interested in uh-huh, edge yeah. weapons. You know, that was, that was an idea that I had. And he said, that would make a hell of a comic book character. Mm. And he told me who he was. And I knew, of course, because I've been reading Kirby comic books since. It's your year on. and a half. Yes. He said, do you have other ideas like this? And I said, of course, endlessly. And he said, why don't you come out and see me? Nice. He said, here's my phone number, my address. I live out in Long Island. Come out and we'll talk. He said, I have an idea. Hey, what I have to lose. I thought it would be fun to talk to Joe Simon, Kirby's partner for years. At the end of that show, Sunday, I drove out to his place and we talked for a while. And he said, I'm starting a new line of comics for Harvey. I want to compete with Marvel. And I said, well, I already know some of your Harvey history. You know, you had some interesting material there. And he said that the Harvey brothers felt that they could rival Marvel. Right. With the superheroes. I think you have the possibility of delivering some interesting ideas, like that gladiator that you had in the wall. Well, by the time I left Joe's home studio on Long Island, probably... In the space of 20 minutes, I had a half a dozen ideas. I produced them as presentation pieces Mm. in color. And I sent them up to Joe. And he said, I like this one, this one, and this one. And he said, I want to show them to Al Harvey, get his take on it. And I'll give you a call back in, you know, a week or so. And I think he did. One of them was a, a character I called the Sorcerer which was about a kid magician and his Egyptian sorcerer, mentor, the kid and the hero. Kid and the hero sidekick. So Joe felt that this would be maybe a little more than most writers who have no knowledge of magic. Part of my presentation was that I could show kids who read the books how to do real magic. Oh, that's cool. Like a nice gimmick in the comic of here, you can do this trick. Yeah, a couple pages, you know, filler pages. Nice. You know, do this with a deck of, you know, piece of paper and some scissors or whatever. And Joe liked that idea. And he said, can you deliver all three of these scripts? And I said, I think I can. I've been writing ad copy and other material for years already. And I turned in the three scripts to him. At that juncture, after I had done the presentation pieces in full color, full figures of the characters and the synopsis of what they did, maybe some artifacts around them. I said, what's the possibility of me maybe penciling one of the scripts? And Joe looked at me with his 40 years of professional expertise, and he said, you can't draw. Oh, okay, I can't draw. That was in his infinite wisdom. Yeah. You know, he made that pronouncement. Uh, I think he had Jack Sparling uh, draw one, Bob Powell, I think, did I the see. gladiator. Okay. Joe said, your names are no good. The sorcerer, people don't know what a sorcerer is. I'm going to call him Magic Master. Yeah, Magic Master, you know right. I'm like, Joe, that's so unbelievably corny. You yeah. Know, nobody would buy it. It's just, sorcerer is the right, no, 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 nobody would, nobody knows I what see. that is. And he said, the gladiator, that's just too plain. It's too simple. And I said, Joe, did you ever hear of like Batman, Superman? Yeah, simple names. Simple names. And he said, no, no, no. We'll call this guy the glowing gladiator. 
Mm. And I'm thinking, what kind of hell did I just step into? <laughs> so that's why he left, is editorial interference. And yeah. I think by man, he left the way it was. Right. And I was so disappointed when the books came out. I think he hired me to do another second issue scripts or something like that, but I didn't get paid and various promises, but no check ever came in. And I finally began to get a little more abusive calling, calling Joe. And I said, you know, like, Joe, don't make me have to come up there. You know, I know where you live. Don't make me have to come up there. I mean, it's just Harvey paid you for the work. You know, you just got to send a check on. I had to beg him to pay me for the work that I turned in, not the characters. They didn't pay me for the characters. They already owned those characters. I couldn't get paid for the damn scripts, which right. was peanuts, whatever it was. And uh, eventually I got some money out of Joe, but I said, hey, look, I don't mind spending this kind of time and effort, but if I have to beg to get paid, that's going over the top. Yeah. So it, it wasn't fun at that point. So I was hanging out with my friend and my mentor, Wally Wood, yeah. the great inspirations and perhaps one of the most prolific and brilliant comic book artists maybe that ever lived. He could do everything That's right. well. Everything. He could do funny animals. He could do superheroes. He could do westerns. He could do horror. He could do everything, war, really well. I don't know, I may have been showing Woody some drawings, and he said, you know, you're never going to be happy until you're in the comic book business. Until you make your statement, you will never be happy. Right, that makes sense. And I said, I'm not disagreeing with you, but, you know, I already have two full-time jobs. You know, what do I need a third one for? And he said, I'm going to call my publisher at Tower Comics. Yeah. He might like to see this work. You might want to talk to him. Sam Schwartz? Harry Shorten. Harry Shorten, that's it. Harry that's Shorten. right. Harry Shorten did this great panel in Sunday Comics. And I read it for years and I loved it. I loved his work. And I showed him some of these drawings. And he said, yeah, I see what Wood means here. And we talked for a little while. And he said, do you have an idea for a possible character. And I said, I might have something that might do what Joe Simon and Al Harvey wanted to do, rival Marvel Comics. I said, I've got a, an idea for a character called Super Agent X, like the X-Men, X. And he said, hey, I like that idea. What's it about? I didn't have the vaguest idea. <laughs> but it's a great title. I was just on the spot. And I said, well, why don't I develop some material for you? And he said, if I like it as much as I like these, you're going to have a 52-page book just like Wally Wood. Yeah, yeah. I was walking on the clock. Yeah, sure. So I came back and I wrote and penciled the origin story of Super Agent X, took it back up there. And he looked at the pencils, 20 pages, and I had cover concepts for him to look at. And he said, hey... I like this, and I think it is something. It's done in kind of like the Marvel style. Oh, okay. He said, I think I can use this. You've yeah. got the book. Does everybody know the rest of the story? Can Continue. I really tell you the rest of it? Yeah, I think so, yes. <laughs> so he said, you and I won't be talking again unless our paths cross in the hallway. He said, from now on, I'm going to turn you over to my art director, Sam Schwartz. There you go. And he said he was over at Archie for years. And I said, I think I remember his name. So he took me into this office, no bigger than a telephone booth. And a telephone booth with a couple of filing cabinets in it. And I think it had a chair, one chair. 
And Sam began to look at my pages and he began to shake his head. Sam Schwartz did. Okay. Sam Schwartz. I see. Shaking his head. So that's what happened. You know, I'm thinking, uh, you know, what does this mean? As he's going through, he cites an example. He said, you see this woman scientist that I had modeled after Kim Novak. Alfred Hitchcock, the Vertigo girl. Great beauty. I had a big crush on her growing up. We all did. So I put her in my comic book. Kim has a very cool nature, and I figure as a scientist, a woman scientist, she'd need a cool disposition. Okay. Just right. And he said, I don't like the shape of this woman's nose. I'm going like, what did you just say? And I said, well, maybe you'd like her to have one of those, you know, cute little pug howdy-doody noses like Betty and Veronica. And he said, you know what? I think maybe I would. Yeah. So anyway, he continues to go through the pages and he's just shaking his head and, you know, kind of, kind of grumbling about things. And finally get to the end of the book, climactic scene somewhere. I had our hero, Super Agent X, take out a pair of villains, opponents, by throwing two punches. Look, I boxed for three years. Are you going to tell me anything about throwing punches? Right, right. You're and, not going to do it. And he was criticizing that. You know, and we got this little guy, you know, little skinny guy, you know, who looks like he just stepped off of a toilet ad. <laughs> um, he's telling me about throwing punches. Now, we're in Fantasyland, Comic Bookville. Yeah. This isn't in the ring. We're not talking about reality. We're talking about fantasy fighting, right? Kirby set the style. Anything goes. There's nothing. So he just kind of nitpicked the little things. No, it wasn't that. I realized when he brought that punch, what he was really doing at that point is he was grooming me. Oh, I see. Grooming me to be his slave. Okay. He was the king, and I would be one of his slave boys working here. Psychological warfare. And I thought that was a very disagreeable thing, really nasty for a kid like me right off the street. I had no experience you know, essentially in this business, my friend Woody brought me into it. And this guy's trying to make me a slave. I, get I see. Very, very angry. And I said, you say one more word and I'm going to knock you the out. Because <laughs> I was ready to punch him out right yeah, then there. Yeah, that's right. I thought that was really unprofessional of him to do that to a kid just fresh in the business. Right, right. He was taking advantage of me. He was trying to take advantage of my inexperience. Right. You know, to, to control me. And you sensed it. So I took the pages and left. I lost a 52-page comic book like my friend Wally Wood, bam, over the shape of a girl's nose. Could I make this stuff up? So I went down to Archie Comics, which was a few blocks away. And I went to the reception area, and I said, I'd like to talk to somebody about maybe drawing for you. And she said... Would you like to talk to John Goldwater? Well, John was the J in MLJ Comics. That's right. And I knew that. And John came out and he looked over my work and he said, I don't think we have anything for you, but I'd love for you to draw all of our covers. And I liked John a lot. He was a really personable guy. Mm -hmm. And I said, John, today is Super Asian X Day. I said, I appreciate the offer, but... I'll have to pass on it. And from there, I went down to D.C., walked into the office, the same reception office I was in, you know, that day with Julie Schwartz. And I had these pages under my arm. And I said, yeah, I'd like to show some pages to one of your editors. And the woman said, well, how about Murray Boltonoff? And I knew Murray's work. 
And I said, sure, absolutely. He was a cartoonist. I think Henry was the cartoonist and Murray was the writer. He looked over the work and he said, yeah, you know, there's something I, you know, I, I like this. Uh, I like some things here. And I'm thinking, I just found a home for Super Agent X. He'll be the brother of Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and the yeah. Flash and Hawk. Join the Pantheon. Said, no, 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 no. He said, I'm not interested in Super Agent X. I want you to write for us. He said, I like the way you write. Mm. I like your pacing. Mm. I like your dialogue. He said, I want you to write for us. I'll, I'll give you a job right now, an assignment. Mm. I said, ah, oh, look, I appreciate it. Really, I mean, it's very kind of you, Murray, but today's Super Agent X Day. I got to make that happen. And he said, okay, I can't quite explain this to you, but from was running out of places. I went down to 44th Street and I went to Paramount, the building there. And I walked in and I knew they had their animation studios there. I can't explain this exactly. What the hell was I doing in Paramount Animation Studios? But hey, you roll the dice, right? <laughs> That's right. So the receptionist said, can I... Can I help you? I've got an idea for a cartoon series. She said, well, what would you like me to do? I said, is there somebody here that could take a look at it, make a decision that I could talk to? Five minutes, three minutes, three minutes. She said, there's a new guy that just started here a little while ago. She said, you want to talk to him? What's his name? Ralph Bakshi. Oh, really? He wasn't yet the real Ralph Bakshi. Yeah, the one that we came to find. Ralph came out as a Brooklyn guy. We talked the same language. He liked the work. And he said, you ought to talk to Seamus Culhane. In the animation world, Seamus Culhane is as big a name as Walt Disney. A brilliant, brilliant animator. No kidding. He said, come on, I'll introduce you. Went into Seamus's office. Energetic guy. He solitaired all 20 Agent X pages out on the floor. Like he's playing solitaire so he could see them all at once. That's what animators do. He laid them out on the floor and walking back and forth and absorbing this action and the characters, the costumes. And he said, you know what? This would make a hell of a Saturday morning TV series. Yeah, right. <laughs> Sam Schwartz, we'll see you in hell. <laughs> so he said, I want you to come back in two weeks. I'll have a contract for you. He kept some of my cover designs. Posted him on the bulletin board. He said, I want to keep these here to look at. Very inspiring. He said, you take the rest. My job was over. You right. know, I did what I set out to do. I have this trick that I used in my show business years of psyching myself up. I don't know if you, you know, have experienced that, but often when musicians, performers, actors, before they go on stage, they get themselves into a particular mindset, state, a creative state. Yeah, sure. And... When I was driving up there that day, I got myself into a state, and I had done this, you know, for years uh, before that, selling people at the ad agency things and performing on stage, doing magic and all kind of other stuff. I got myself into a state where people could not say no to me. Couldn't do it. I mean, I couldn't do it now. So I thought it was quarter to five at the end of the day. I had 15 minutes left. You know how much trouble I can get into in 15 minutes? Probably a lot, if you wanted to. I took a cab over to Marvel, and I got there about five minutes to five, and they were both in the joint. And I went up to the seventh floor, Marvel Comics, walked in, and there was fabulous flow style. Nice, yeah. Really cute. Go-go boots, yeah. short skirt, and sure. she was just really cute. I wasn't even caring about comic books at this point. Anyway, I said, I'd like to see Stan Lee. 
She laughed in my face. Nobody sees Stan Lee. So I grabbed her wrist, I levered her arm up, and I put my Super Agent X pages under her arm, clamped it down, and I said, <laughs> Stan will see me. And I pointed to the door. And she left. And she came back about two minutes later. Yeah. And she had this stunned look on her face. Uh-huh. And he said yes. And no pages. You get it? He's looking at it. And him. she said, it was like she'd been hit in the head with a ball-peen hammer. She was like stunned, drugged. She said, like, Stan, we'll see you. And it was the cleanest office I've ever been in in my life. Facing Madison Avenue. I think it was at 57th and Madison. Am I close? Yeah, something like that. And it was right in the corner. I don't think it was in the corner office yet. Anyway, I handed the pages over to him, and I told him the story about Tower. I got into a fight, and he's looking through my pages, and he's asking me, like, who the hell are you? And I'm having a conversation with him about Kirby and Bill Everett and Johnny Yeah. you know, the guys that I loved and I grew up with. Yeah. So we're having these alternate conversations. You know, he'd do two minutes, and I'd do two minutes, and, you know, we were swimming. got through all the 20 pages, and he said, this work is really crude. <laughs> but, and I'm saying like, but what? You know, you got to fill me in or you got to make me guess. <laughs> and he said, no, no, no. Look, it has something here that I could really use. I could sell. I could market something nice. that I see on these pages. That's great. I said, name it. And he said, your work ripples with energy. He said, I can sell that. And I said, so... What are we going to do? And he said, you know what? All my books are taken. I don't have anything for you. <laughs> everything there. Hey, what the hell did I care? I just sold a Saturday morning TV series to sure. Paramount Pictures. And you're on top of the world. Well, I already had two other full-time jobs. What the hell did I care? So he said, I know what you're going to do. I said, fill me in. He said, I know you're going to go over to D.C. And in three months from now, you're going to be my competition. And he said, I cannot afford you to be my competition. I said, look, make up your mind. <laughs> What's it going to be? Yeah. On the wall above his desk was all the monthly comic books. And he pointed the rack and he said, two words that changed comic history. Pick one. He said, I could have had Spider-Man. Pick one. I could have had the FF. I could have had Thor. But there's a word for competing with Jack Kirby or following Jack Kirby. Right, to following be right Jack after those Kirby, guys. There's a word for it. Suicide. Hey, look, I might be crazy, but I'm not stupid. Mm -hmm. I picked the lowest book that they had. All these guys had really cool masks and colorful costumes and cloaks and superpowers and electricity and they could fly. Except this one joker. He had a cigar. I said, I'll take this guy, Nick mm -hmm. Fury, Agent mm -hmm. of S.H.I.E.L.D., because mm -hmm. I knew I had nowhere to go but up. Right, that's on true. On that strip. Mm -hmm. And the rest is history. Well, this has been an incredible first half of the Steranko experience. Stay tuned in two weeks, where we explore Marvel Comics entering his career of many facets in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, and beyond for the second half. <laughs>